Good morning to everybody today. What a joy it is to welcome you to this special Palm Sunday service. And whether you're joining us right here in the seats at our Butterfield campus or online today, we're really honored to have you starting this Holy Week with us. We planned a very special service for you today, one that's a little bit different than what you might have experienced on a typical Sunday, but one we pray will really speak to your heart. It will contain some wonderful songs, some scripture, and some storytelling. And in the process of telling the great story of what happened long ago during this week, we're going to get maybe a little graphic at times in ways that are consistent with the gospel message itself, but which may be a little edgy for some of the younger members of the community. And so we want to invite parents to exercise uh, their discretion as they may need to. As we prepare to come into worship this morning, I would invite you to bow your head with me as we come before our God in prayer. Let's pray together. Awesome and amazing God, we, we sit before the wonder that you have loved the people of this planet so very much that you did not leave us to spin on our own, that you did not abandon us to our worst passions, that you did not reject us when we rejected you, but that you sent your one and only Son to be our shepherd, our sacrifice, and our Savior. Along with those who mourn in Nashville today, along with those who struggle with loss in Arkansas and so many places, along with people of our city and beyond who, who ache with hope for a better future, we cry out to you, O great Messiah. Like the crowd who gathered in the streets of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, help us to be truly present to you, Lord. Like the disciples who hung on Jesus' every word this Holy Week, Enable us to hear your life-changing voice. And like Mary and John, who stood at the foot of your cross, O Christ, may we humbly and prayerfully receive the grace that you pour out to us today. For it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Shadows put to light. 
Without so much as a raised brow of resistance, the owners let them borrow the cult. Such irony, the one through whom all things came into being, himself has nothing. A king without so much as a cult to his name. It is such a king who rides today toward Jerusalem, seated not on a proud Arabian horse, but on a borrowed little donkey. It is an unlikely sight, almost a comic sight, but this is how he comes, meek and lowly, without pomp, without ceremony, without even the slightest concern for appearances. The road he travels is lined with people waiting like tiptoed children for a parade. There he is. I see him. One of those waiting in line does something you would expect only from a child caught up in the excitement of the moment. She rushes towards Jesus, peels off her shawl, and spreads it before the young donkey. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed As is the coming kingdom of our father David. As they scurry back in line, another man steps forward and lays his garment down. Then another. The childlike excitement spreads and a surge of people fills the road. Men pulling off their cloaks, women spreading out shawls, young men climbing trees, tearing off palm fronds and olive branches and limbs of sweet smelling balsam. Children picking handfuls of spring flowers and sprinkling them in the Savior's path. Hosanna! Hosanna! The colt plods ahead, one tentative step at a time, struggling under the unaccustomed weight. Jesus also struggles with the weight he carries, and the closer he comes to the holy city, the heavier that weight becomes. His burden is lightened by the people lining the road, reaching out to him. Their hands are an extension of their hearts. His coming is a royal procession, their cloaks for their king. Until now, Jesus has refused any attempt to make him king. But this Passover, he comes to reveal himself. And he has picked a colt instead of a chariot to make sure Jerusalem understands that he is the king Zechariah foretold. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Pharisees are ruffled by this sudden flurry of emotion. They worry what will happen if this type of emotionalism swept through the gates of Jerusalem. Teacher, tell these people to stop making these wild claims and acting this way. They talk to the people about the dangers of this religious renegade. The crowd is misinformed. Their emotions are misguided. Their praise, a mistake. The entire city ascends into view. For every Jew who ever crested that hill, it was a breathtaking sight. But for Jesus, it is a panorama of pain. He knows the cloaks of honor will lead to a cloak of dishonor. He knows the blessings outside the gates will change to curses within. He knows the hands of praise will become fists of punishment. He knows the reverently placed palms will become a mocking reed scepter. But knowing this, Jesus does not weep for himself. He weeps for Jerusalem. i 
As the disciples prepare for Passover, Jerusalem is brimming with religious pilgrims who have poured into the holy city to celebrate the feast. It is a sacred time for the Jew, a time to look back, back to the nation's deliverance from the tight-knuckled 400 years of Egyptian bondage. It is also a time to look forward, forward to the time when the Messiah will come to usher in an unprecedented era of blessing. This Passover, Jesus and the Twelve withdraw to an upper room. It is a quiet respite from tonight's teeming crowds and from the turbulent storm that awaits tomorrow. Jesus and the disciples gather around a low table to celebrate the feast. John reclines to the right of Jesus, Judas to the left at the place of honor. Each portion they handle is a sermon echo of the nation's first Passover. The bowl of bitter herbs, vinegar, and salt is a reminder of the bitter years of slavery. The flat, yeastless bread is a reminder of the hurried exodus. And finally, there is the roasted lamb, a symbol of deliverance. What broke Pharaoh's oppressive fist that first Passover was a final climactic plague, a visit from the angel of death to kill every firstborn son. To spare the Jews from that fate, God instructed them to kill a lamb and sprinkle its blood on the sides and tops of the door frames outside their homes. When the angel of death saw the evidence of faith, it passed over that house and traveled on to another. Tonight, Jesus is celebrating the feast an evening early. For tomorrow, when the nation will be preparing its Passover lambs, God will be preparing his, an innocent lamb without spot or blemish, led to the slaughter silent before its shears, stricken and pierced for our transgressions. Seated now at the table, Jesus' forehead is furrowed, his brows knit, his eyes intense. He has so much to tell his disciples, but so little time, a hush falls over the room as he speaks. I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. At the mention of a traitor in the midst, the disciples recoil, shadows miming every move. At first, there is only a tense, breathless silence. Then the table is abuzz with whispered questions regarding the traitor's identity. It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. He hands the bread to Judas to take and to eat. The dramatic moment is not only an unmasking of the traitor, but a final offer of salvation. Judas's pulse quickens and his face flushes hot and red. For an awkward but tender moment, the eyes of the betrayer and the betrayed meet. A knife of regret cuts an opening in Judas's soul Haltingly, he takes the rolled up piece of bread, but he can't quite bring it to his mouth. Sweat gathers at his hairline, he bites his lip. From the shadows, Satan sees the quivering hand. He sees his pawn is vulnerable. The prince of darkness counters with a strategic move and enters Judas. Judas puts down the bread and reaches for his pouch. What you are about to do, do quickly. With those words, Jesus seals his fate and the fate of Judas. They would both go their separate ways, to separate trees, to separate destinies. What you are about to do, do quickly. It would be the last command Judas would obey. And it would be the last intimate moment he would spend with the Savior, ever. Please stand. 
say it so often, especially this time of year, that Jesus gave his life for us, that God so loved the world, he sent his son to give his life for us. But what does that really mean? Well, at its heart, the gospel story is a story about the heart of one who had lost their heart for him. The world was lost in sin violence and selfishness, had no idea how far it had strayed away from God's first intentions and how broken the human species had become. It would have been an understandable thing had God chosen in that moment to just wipe it all away, erase the board, start over again, destroy the earth, leave all of those souls separated from him for all eternity as it seemed clear, so many people preferred to go their own way. But he didn't. He came to them. He became one of them. He poured out his life for them. Their debts and their trespasses, as our debts and trespasses, were so great, so heinous before a holy God, that there was no possibility that any one of us could ever make up for it. So Jesus paid it all, took the full punishment that sin deserves upon his own flesh and spirit, died a spiritual and physical death in agony that we would not have to, that a way might be opened up back into relationship with God. And everywhere people have got that, Everywhere they've even begun to take in the reality of that into their spirits, they begin to have a heart that is a bit more like his. A heart that moves towards other people and their needs to offer grace and mercy, undeserved favor of many kinds. As we bring forward today the gifts that we have to give, as the ushers come and pass the plates or as we take advantage of the Christ Connect app that can allow us to give online, I just invite you to marvel at the wonder of the one who loved us so much and at the privilege of being able to continue to be vessels of his grace in the lives of other people. As we think of all that we now have 
in Christ alone. Gethsemane is where we go when there's no place to go but God. It is midnight as they step over the bald rocks in the brook. On the other side, they shake water from their sandals and pause as a Roman sentry calls out his watch. To the disciples, it is merely a rending of the silence and a reminder of the time. To Jesus, it is a rending of his heart and a reminder that time is running out. When the disciples look up, Jesus is several paces ahead. He stops in a grove of olive trees at the foot of Gethsemane. The twitching branches grow still. Some of the trees in this garden have waited with rooted patience over a thousand years for this moment. And before them, every tree since Eden. Each branch holding on to the bud of a promise 
clinging to the hope that in their lifetime, the Messiah will come and lead the creation back to paradise. Tonight, he comes as he makes his way to the heart of the garden. The weight of his destiny bears down on him. He stops to rest his forearm against a large branch. For generations, the olive branch has been a symbol of peace, but not tonight, not for Jesus. For the disciples, though, the garden offers a quiet place to rest. They huddle together as a fortress against sleep, but the day has been long and supper is setting in their stomachs. And one by one, they fall victim to the night. Alone in the clearing, Jesus falls to his knees, then to the ground. He clutches the mane of grass as if to rein in the runaway terror. He writhes on the ground, his agony reflected in the twisted trunks of the onlooking trees. He claws the ground, groping for its embrace. There is no embrace. There is only silence and darkness and the cold, hard ground. The angels watch all this, but they are restricted to the shadows, legions of them craning their necks, aching to help, watching as Jesus wrestles in the dark night that has fallen upon his soul. He wrestles in prayer, but this prayer is no well-constructed sonnet whispered with composure. His words are the shards of a broken heart and they shred his soul on the way up. He who once towered over his opposition like the cedars of Lebanon now lies folded on the ground, a bent reed of a man. Eden's only hope lying in the dirt among, among so many fallen twigs. But Jesus gets up, wipes the gritty sweat from his face, returns to his disciples, desperately needing their companionship, their encouragement, their prayers. But the disciples are asleep. He starts to chide them, but he knows the weakness of the flesh as well as the willingness of the spirit. And he can't bring himself to be too hard on them. He returns to the clearing with the fateful realization that this is a place where he must wrestle alone and pray alone. Habba, Father? His words are underscored with sobs. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. The father's heart breaks over what he sees, what he hears. His own son groveling in the dirt. His only son crying in the dark like a lost little boy. Habba? And what father wouldn't answer a request like that? Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But on this dark night, good gifts from heaven don't come. Neither does an answer. The only answer that comes is voiced through the events of the night and the next day. The son is betrayed, deserted, and arrested an apparent stone instead of the requested bread, a snake instead of a fish. Abba. For a moment, an unseen gate is opened. An angel is allowed to step from the shadows. He enters the arena, not to save Jesus from his suffering, but to strengthen him so he can endure it. Jesus pushes himself up from the ground and lifts his eyes toward heaven. Yet not what I will but what you will. His hands are no longer clutching the grass in despair. They are no longer clasping each other in prayer. They are raised toward heaven, reaching not for bread or for a fish or for any other good gift, not even for answers. 
but reaching for the cup from the Father's hand. And though it is a terrible cup, brimming with the wrath of God from the ferment of sin from centuries past and centuries yet to come, and though it is a cup he fears, he takes it. Because more than he fears the cup, he loves the hand from which it comes. a detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I said something wrong, then testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Who would have thought that there, in those sacred halls, lived such insecurity, such hostility, such treachery? Who would have thought the opposition to the anointed would come from the very offices God ordained, from priests and temple officials? Their scriptures, their sacrifices, their holidays, their rituals, they all prepared the way for his coming. How could such a religious people, so steeped in the scriptures, so trained in theology, how could they miss the truth when the truth stood right before them, staring them in the face? is late, the night dark and chilly. Peter has followed Jesus all the way to the temple courtyard where the Savior, under heavy guard, awaits his hearing. He comes because Jesus is his Lord, because Jesus would have come for him had the tables been turned. He comes to help, not knowing what he can do or how or when. A thousand scenarios crowd his mind, He's confused and torn. Do, do I grab a sword and fight? No. He rebuked me for that in the garden. Do I testify on his behalf? A lot of good that would do. Do I just watch and listen so I can rally the disciples in the morning? Cloaked in anonymity, Peter comes to warm himself by a campfire, a radius of warmth shared by his Lord's captors. He comes to think to sort things out, to plan his next move. Talk around the fire crackles with news of the Nazarene's arrest. A servant girl squints at Peter through the uncertain light cast by the fire. This man was with him. Peter feels the heat of the incriminating flames and flatly denies the charge. He begins to sweat now. What could I be to Jesus if my identity was out in the open? It would only make matters worse. And who is going to get word back to the others? Sometime later, there is another accusation and immediately another denial, only more forceful this time. 
Finally, his accent gives him away. You're a Galilean. I can tell by the way you talk. You must be one of his disciples. He would have to think quick to get around that one. He then curses and swears, letting loose a herd of expletives in hopes of kicking up enough dust to cloud his identity. In no uncertain terms, he denies any association with Jesus. The ploy seems to have worked. The circle around the campfire appears satisfied. But somewhere in the night, a rooster stretches its neck, shakes its feathers, and crows in indictment. The disciple jerks his head around and catches Jesus looking at him. The Savior utters no words, nor does he shake his head in disappointment or lower it in disgust. His look is not a begrudged, I told you so. It is sympathetic from one who knows what it's like to fall into the winnowing hands of Satan. Jesus has been there too, for 40 days in a barren wilderness. His look carries no grudge. It is the look of a friend who understands. With that look, all of Peter's pent-up emotions suddenly cave in on themselves. He runs from the courtyard, bitter tears stinging his eyes. He stops somewhere outside and beats his fists against his chest. He pulls at his hair. The weight of his guilt is too much to bear. He collapses in a wailing heap. He cries and cries until there are no more tears left to cry, but then he cries some more. He weeps for the Savior he has so miserably failed, and he weeps for himself. Oh God, what have I done? What have I done? God, take this dark hour from me. Turn back the night. Give me another chance. When tears finally do stop, the night has paled to gray. Soon it will be dawn. Peter is a smaller man now, without the thick husk that once surrounded his life. He's broken, and he is bare. jurisdiction, executions by the ruling council of the Sanhedrin were outlawed. That's why the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate. Though himself a cruel man, Pilate is also a careful man, always calculating his next move, always weighing it against consequences to his career. For now, his career has placed him in the position of procurator of Judea, a job he disdains. He has no respect for the Jews over whom he rules, or for their beliefs, or for their convictions. He defers to them only when it is expedient. Jesus stands before him now. Jesus admits to the accusation against him that he is a king. He is nothing like a king, and yet, and yet something about him, something in his eyes, a look, a look that troubles Pilate, a look he can't explain, a look he fears. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is in another place. Aha, so you admit it, you are a king then. You are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate's question is answered with silence. He turns from Jesus and walks out onto his porch to address the people, walking gingerly between the confines of his own conscience and the coercions of the crowd. In keeping with holiday tradition, he offers them the release of a prisoner, any prisoner, and in his heart, the prisoner he hopes they choose is Jesus. It is not. And once again, the fateful choice falls to him. He turns from the crowd, picking his way carefully through the tangle of alternatives. He decides to have Jesus flogged. Maybe that will satisfy them. 
Maybe then they'll back down. And so he gives the order, then retreats to his chambers to give his conscience a rest. A whip is used to mete out the punishment. The bite of the whip sends tremors of pain through every nerve in Jesus' body. The pain travels all the way to the nerves in his lips, which quiver, but which do not cry out. By the time the flogging is over, the skin on the Savior's back is eaten away. Welted trails of blood map the cruelty on the rest of his body. The two guards who brought him pick him up and take him back to Pilate. But Pilate has been detained with other business. With decrees Herod wanted him to sign and budgets he wanted him to approve. Jesus is brought to a holding area. Jesus' hands, hands that once reached out to touch lepers and to stroke the hair of children are cuffed in rope. Guards shouldered on either side parade him around the perimeter of soldiers. The soldiers know little about Jesus except the rumor of his claim to be some sort of king. As they stop their activity to eye the rumored king, the smell of sport in the air comes to them strongly, irresistibly. Crouching on eager haunches, they approach him like a pack of wolves. Weary from the loss of sleep and lightheaded from the loss of blood, Jesus collapses. A voice howls, strip him. A few of the soldiers pounce and pull Jesus to his feet, ripping the blood-soaked garment off his back. He stands alone. There is no one to defend him, no one to shield him from their stares, no one to protect him from their savagery. A man shoves him a stool. Your throne, O king, sit. As the half-conscious Jesus stiffly moves, a man hurls expletives in his face and shouts, I said sit down. When Jesus starts to sit, the stool is pulled out from under him. The room erupts in laughter. The soldier extends a hand. Weakly, Jesus reaches for it. As he does, the soldier balls his other hand into a fist and hits him. Amid the raucous laughter, amid the pool of blood streaming from his nose, Jesus lies motionless. With his face against the flagstone floor, Jesus closes his eyes. For a moment, his swelling face finds mercy in the cool of the stone but only for a moment. A couple soldiers hoist the battered prisoner on the stool. One of them prostrates himself. A gift from a loyal subject. He then rises with an uppercut, tearing the ligaments in Jesus' jaw from their hinges. They drape a deep red cape around his shoulders, which blots the spillage of blood and dyes the cloth a more somber shade. They place a tall reed in his hand. Your scepter, your majesty. Another soldier has taken a strand of thorns from the tinderbox and woven it into a wreath. A king's got to have a crown. He mashes the three-inch thorns into Jesus' scalp. Another man yanks the reed from Jesus' hand and slaps it across his head, driving the thorns deeper. Each puncture leaks a line of blood. Hail, King of the Jews, shouts the commanding officer, and the entire cohort kneels. But instead of tossing the king's garland of praise, the soldiers drudge up phlegm from the raspy depths of their throats and toss that. Word comes to the guards that Pilate is ready for the prisoner. So they lead him back to the hall of judgment, a judgment Pilate is reluctant to make. He believes Jesus is innocent, but he has to convince the crowds. Pilate brings Jesus in full view of those crowds, hoping the pitiful sight will evoke a sense of pity. Here is the man, the one you want to crucify. Look at him now. Here is your king. The words come as waves of hate, one after the other, surging louder. Pilate has faced these waves before. He has felt their fury, and he knows better than to stand against them. Even so, he tries one more time to turn the tide, 
Pilate asks the chief priest, Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Their counter move moves Pilate into a political corner, a corner from which there is no retreat. If word ever reached Rome that he freed a rival to the emperor, the very thought sends shudders up his spine. This isn't Rome's business, and it certainly isn't worth risking a riot over or my career. So in a politically expedient move, Pilate approaches a basin and dips his hands into the water. In one cleansing gesture, he appeases his conscience. I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Please stand. chalky knoll just outside Jerusalem's northern wall. Scooped with shallow caverns, the rounded hill looks grim and ominous and well fitted to its name, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Three vertical beams are staked to the top of that hill, standing tall and unshaded in the morning sun. Like soldiers after Reveille, standing at attention, awaiting the day's assignment. The assignment for today is two robbers and a religious zealot. One by one, the prisoners are muscled to the ground and stretched across their crossbeams. The first thief struggles, but a handful of soldiers subdues him. Sitting on him as the spiker does his work. He screams as the spikes impale his wrists. Two wraps on one arm, two more on the other. Seeing this, hearing this, the 
the other prisoner struggles even more desperately. But the guards subdue him too. Two raps, then two more, and the uprising is put down. They have saved Jesus for last. The soldier stretches his arms across the coarse grain wood. A soldier straddles his chest. Two others straddles his arms. Two others his legs. They are used to the fitful resistance of condemned men. But this condemned man throws no fit, offers no resistance. The spiker bends on one knee. The pockets of his leather apron bulging with nails, an iron-headed mallet filling his hand. He places the spike just below Jesus' wrist. The clank of metal echoes off the stone walls. One sharp rap to penetrate the arm. One more to penetrate the wood. One rap on the other arm. Then another. And the job is done. By one, the crossbeams are lifted into position. Four soldiers lift Jesus' crossbeams, and two steady his feet. Two others hoist it with ropes that run through a groove in the upright timber. The spikes scrape against the bones in his wrists, and the shifting weight of his body tears the skin and muscles in his arms. But he does not cry out. He buries a moan instead, deep within his chest. The board holes in each beam are aligned, and a peg is driven through them both to join the timbers. Once the crossbeam is secure, Christ's right leg is pulled over the left, and the spiker drives a single nail through both feet. His face winces, recording how far the pain has traveled and how deep. He opens his eyes and sees a few soldiers in the spiker milling around below. Father, forgive them. The three words impale them as forcefully as the three spikes they used to impale him. They all look up transfixed as Jesus finishes his prayer. For they do not know what they are doing. Not only does Jesus ask his father to forgive them, he offers a kind word on their behalf, explaining their behavior. The calloused ears of these soldiers have heard all kinds of words on that hill, all kinds, and in every language. They have never heard words like these, never like these, not once, until now. A chasm of silence opens between the men, separating them from each other. An awkward moment for men used to loud talk and coarse language. In the quiet of that moment, Jesus closes his eyes. The silence below him is bridged by a few feeble planks of conversation. What about his tunic? A shame to cut it up, worth more in one piece. Dice are pulled from a pocket. Winner takes all. A circle forms. After a few rolls, they seem back to their old selves. The losers cursing, the winner bragging. As soldiers return to their stations, Satan returns to his. He is more cunning this time around. Instead of coming out in the open, he voices his temptations through the traffic of onlookers passing by the cross. Satan delights in seeing God's son suffer, yet he fears what that suffering could accomplish. So one last time, this cold-blooded adversary slithers toward the son of God, hissing contempt. The first temptation comes through the religious leaders. Feeling the nearness of their victory, they pack around the cross like jackals cornering a crippled gazelle. Their biting remarks showing a thirst for blood. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Jesus could do that, save himself and show the religious establishment that he truly was the Messiah, the chosen one? If only Jesus would save himself. But their sneers are met only with silence. 
And soon the rulers lose their taste for blood and leave. Sometime later, soldiers making their rounds stop at Christ's cross. They plop a bucket of sour wine on the ground and dip a sponge in it. They stick the sponge on a hyssop branch and use it to mop his wounds. His body writhes at the briny sting of alcohol. The soldiers laugh as they sponge the prisoner down, betting they can get the holy man to curse his God. And if not as God, at least the day of his birth. But he curses neither. They push the sponge at his mouth, but he turns his face away. Then one of the gutter-mouthed men curses Jesus and mocks him with a second temptation. If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. Jesus opens his swollen eyes and sees the blur of men below. He doesn't save himself. He doesn't even save his dignity. He offers no defense, makes no reply. Seeing little sport in his silence, the soldiers move on to the next cross. But Satan does not move with them. He stays to work out another strategy. Since he couldn't appeal to Christ through religious leaders or the Roman soldiers, maybe he could reach him through one of the robbers. Since Christ knew what pain the man was going through, maybe the dying man's suffering would soften him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Slowly, Jesus turns his head to see the man who insulted him. He sees eyes that are lit with anger. Anger at life for bringing him there. Anger at Rome for putting him there. Anger at Jesus for leaving him there. How simple it would be for Jesus to ease the burn in the soul that inflames this man's eyes. He has done it so many times before. He thinks of the fire extinguished when he expelled demons from the desert of that man's soul. He thinks too of the woman at the well and how the living water he offered quenched the desperate thirst in her soul. He can stop the fire in this man's soul too and the fever in his wounds and in the man next to him. If only Jesus will save himself and us. But Jesus knows something. The man hanging next to him does not. He knows he can choose one or the other. He can save himself or he can save us. He can't do both. In spite of how much pain he was in, in spite of how tired he was, how weak and how alone he had the strength to choose us.
please be seated. And so it begins. This sacred journey, joined by believers and seekers all over our planet this week. We thank you for starting that journey with us today. And we hope and pray it's been meaningful for you. Some of you came into this place carrying burdens in your life. And if we know anything from the story we've just heard, God cares about those burdens enough to shoulder them. And if we can pray for you about anything that's going on in your life, over by the prayer banner here, you'll find friends on hand that would be honored to serve you in that way. Or you can share with your hosts online and they will do that likewise. If you're new to the life of our church and would like to know just a little bit more about this place and more importantly, let us get to know a little bit more about you. My colleague, Carice, is gonna be right up here in front for a little uh, meet and greet exercise after the service we call Christ Church in Five. And she would love to greet you right here and to get to know your name and learn about what your hopes and interests may be. We have three more amazing experiences of worship and devotion uh, spelled out for these days to come. On Thursday and Friday, we're doing a remarkable uh, gathering that is uh, geared to all ages that we call Moments with the Savior. It's a self-guided uh, tour through the Stations of the Cross. And we've added some special elements this year that we think will be especially meaningful for families. So whatever age, know that you can come and be part of that. Then on Friday evening, over in our beautiful sanctuary, I'll be leading a candlelight communion Good Friday service. This is truly one of the most moving, maybe the most moving service that happens all year long. And we'd love to welcome you to come and be part of that. It starts at 7.30. And then this weekend, we're gonna turn our hearts to hope. The great hope of the resurrection, the Easter celebration, in addition to all of the wonderful Sunday services we're offering on both of our campuses, We've got a four o'clock Saturday option as well, right here in this place. We'd love to have you come. It follows after our extravaganza, a special program for children that begins at 2.30 with an Easter egg hunt and all kinds of marvelous family fun. We'd love to have you be part of these things. You don't have to remember all those details. We've printed up some cards outside that provide all the information that you would want that you can use to share with other people as an invitation to have them come and be part of what will be available here. Or you can go to the Christchurch Connect app or to our website and get all the same information. And once again, if you are new and you can't stay for Christ Church in Five, you might want to fill out one of these Connect cards that on the back of the seat in front of you and uh, we'll reach out to you in time uh, just to say hello. Would you rise now and join me and receive this benediction as we go upon our way today? And now, beloved, seek out the way of the Lord wherever you go from here, because there is no darkness so deep. There is no brightness so overwhelming that he is not there too, to find you, to companion you, to supply you with grace and truth and his overwhelming love for these times. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, our heavenly father and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit go with you till we meet again and forevermore.